Welcome to the Tell Us Something podcast. I'm Mark Moss. We are currently looking for storytellers for the next Tell Us Something storytelling event. The theme is The First Time. If you'd like to pitch your story for consideration, please call 406-203-4683. You have three minutes to leave your pitch. The pitch deadline is February 20th. I look forward to hearing from you. This week on the podcast. When we came into the dark room, he had already had this projector and the roll-up screen set up. And as we sat there on our folding chairs, he started up the projector with that wonderful sound. And she's screaming. I'm looking around like she, she can't be screaming at me. I, uh, I just got here. I no longer felt the cold. There was no moon that night. And there were so many stars. My mind went numb. And the sky was so incredibly, absolutely, unforgivably black. She says, what's going on? And Josh says, he's going around your desk a thousand times. She's like, okay, Einstein's, this I want to see. Four storytellers share their true personal story on the theme, It's the Little Things. Their stories were recorded live in person in front of a sold-out crowd on December 15, 2022 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Our first storyteller is Jim Hart. Jim has always loved film ever since he was a boy. When the distributors forget to send the second reel of Wild in the Streets, Jim gets creative in the way that he avoids giving refunds. Jim calls his story more than a movie. Thanks for listening. This isn't the first time I've spoken to an audience in a movie theater, which the Wilma was, but it's the first time I've talked about talking about it in a movie theater. So before I moved to Missoula, the home of the great Roxy Theater, I was film projectionist at George Eastman Museum's Dryden Theater, where I projected everything from silent movies to modern independence to flammable nitrate film. And before every film, somebody walked up to a podium at the front of the uh, stage and gave an introduction to the film. When they were done, I slowly faded out their spotlight and started raising the curtain to the screen and slowly fading out the lights to the theater. And then I started the projector at just the right moment. So the movie hit the screen when the curtain was up and the lights were down. And it was just one of the little things that movie theaters do to give more than a movie. And one time between Christmas and New Year, I had to introduce the film and project the film. I told the audience this was because our fundraising goal had not reached its goal, (laughs) and we could only afford one person, so there was still time to make a donation, so this doesn't happen next year. (laughs) Well, my first movie theater was our New Jersey living room. Dad was really serious about his home movies, how he filmed them, edited them, and presented them. When we came into the dark room, he had already had this projector and the roll-up screen set up. And as we sat there on our folding chairs, he started up the projector with that wonderful sound. And his homemade title came up on the screen. 
Ocean City, 1964. And we laughed as we saw ourselves dancing and splashing in the waves. There were no mistakes. Dad cut that all out. These were real movies starring us. Dad helped me make my first film, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I played the doctor, my brother and my friends played the other parts. Dad filmed it and did this wonderful narration. I showed it at the Boy Scout hobby show in the little room they gave me that I turned into my own movie theater, and I won first prize. Thanks, Dad. Our hometown movie theater was The Strand, like the Wilma, a movie palace built in the 20s. It was a great theater, had really expensive popcorn. Now, there's an old saying in the movie business, movies for yucks, popcorn for bucks. Movies get the audience in, the profit is at the concession stand. So to avoid paying the high Strand popcorn price, I walked down to the Woolworths store and bought a gigantic bag of popcorn for 10 cents and smuggled it in. And I probably was responsible for the strand closing 20 years later. <laughs> Now, back then, the only way to see a new movie was at a theater, and the only way to see an old movie was on TV. My mom and dad were really strict about what we were allowed to see. But fortunately, there was the 4.30 movie. Monday through Friday, Channel 7 showed old films in series weeks, science fiction week, monster week, western week. And mom and dad figured, what's the problem? They're old movies after school. Well, little did they know that they also had crazy lady week with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which was definitely not a kid's film, and got an X rating in England when it opened. So I was learning about film, and I was learning about life. And when I moved to New York City in the 70s to go to NYU Film School, there were all these movie theaters that showed old films, and they were called repertory theaters. And they were great. And after college, one of my first jobs was managing one of them, the Cinema Village, which is still there, down there in Greenwich Village, and still owned by my boss, Nick Nicolau, the hero of independent theaters, who was in the 2019 documentary, The Projectionist, which you should all see. <laughs> It was a cash business. The customers paid their money, went through a turnstile, and saw two films that changed every two days. And the beginning of one double feature on the first day, the first film was a 1968 film I'd seen on the 4.30 movie, Wild in the Streets. The plot was, what would happen if 18-year-olds got the vote? And what happened was a rock star becomes president after his band dumps LSD into the Potomac River. And the Congress, tripping their brains out, passes a law that 14-year-olds can vote. And the president sends all the old people, over 30, 
including his parents, to concentration camps where they have to wear purple robes and drink acid and trip all day. <laughs> so about two-thirds of the way into Wild in the Streets, the projectionist calls me, says, yeah, I thought you should know the film's going to end in 10 minutes. So I looked at the screen, I said, it's supposed to end in 30 minutes. He goes, yeah, I know, they didn't send the last reel. <laughs> well, unlike today with digital projection where you press a button, it shows the movie straight beginning to end, with film projection, you had 20-minute reels which you switch back and forth between two projectors to give the illusion of a continuing movie. So I told him, this is what I want you to do. Before the reel runs out, close the lens to the projector so we don't see white light on the screen and mute the sound so we don't hear snap, crackle, pop, and raise the lights, I'm going to talk to the audience. So I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jim Hart, manager of the Cinema Village. I'm very sorry to tell you they didn't send us the end to the movie. <laughs> so if you would like a refund, we'd be glad to give it to you as you exit the theater. If you'd like to find out how the film ends, you can stay, and I'll tell you. <laughs> so they stayed, and I told them. <laughs> the president, stoned out of his mind as usual, is driving his Rolls Royce until he comes to a park, and he gets out, and he's playing imagination games like a little boy until he comes to a pond with a small dock and he lies down on the dock, and he sees a string going down into the water. He pulls the string up. There's a crayfish on it. He holds it up to his face, and as he's going to touch it, it bites him! <laughs> he stands up and he stomps on it. Three boys run up and say, what did you do? He was our friend, he was our pet! And the president scowls down at them and says, I killed it. What are you going to do about it? You're not old enough to vote. <laughs> and as the president saunters off, one of the boys looks right in the camera and says, we're going to put everybody over 10 out of business. <laughs> and the audience applauded. And they were happy. And I was happy, and I had given them something more than a movie. Enjoy the show. Thanks, Jim. Jim Hart has worked in the film business for 45 years. He was raised in New Jersey and majored in drama at Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York, before moving to Manhattan, where he received a BFA in film and television at New York University. Jim lived in Manhattan in the 1970s and 80s before moving to Rochester, New York, where he was a film editor for Eastman Kodak Company and an archival projectionist at George Eastman Museum. Since moving to Missoula, Montana in 2021, he has acted in several films produced in Montana. His favorite storyteller is Gene Shepard. Next up is Abigail Gilbert. Abigail has to borrow a car when she is traveling for her job in a super small town in Nebraska. She ends up accidentally stealing a car in the process. Abigail calls her story, The Keys to Success. 
Thanks for listening. It's the middle of March, and I am in Sterling, Nebraska, population 482. I am here because I am on tour with the Missoula Children's Theater, and I have a wonderful tour partner named Michael. So our job as tour actor directors was to travel from town to town each week all across the country in a Ford F-150 and teach children a musical. We would arrive in each town on Sunday, and on Monday, we would cast the students in the musical Pinocchio. We would cast 50 to 60 of them. Then we would start rehearsal. We would teach them the show all week, and then by Friday or Saturday, they had a one-hour-long musical ready to perform for their community and their family and friends. Michael and I would travel with all of the little pieces needed to put on this musical in the back of our truck. We had the props, the set, the costumes, the lights, and then on Sunday we would pack it all up and drive to the next town and do it again. This particular week in Sterling, Nebraska, we were staying with a lovely woman named Deanne who opened her home to us for the week. It was Monday morning, and we had a meeting at the school in town where we were going to meet the principal, who was our point of contact for the week. Now, Michael and I had been on tour together at this point for about two months, so naturally, I had already lost my set of car keys. So to get into our Ford F-150, we would have to unlock the driver's side door, and we didn't have any automatic buttons to unlock or lock, so we'd unlock the driver's side door, reach across the cab, and then unlock the passenger door. So on this particular Monday morning, standing in Deanne's driveway, I decided that I was going to unlock the driver's side door and throw the keys over the top of the car to Michael. The moment the keys left my hands, I knew that they weren't going to make it over the top of the truck. Michael and I watched them fall between the cab and the topper, nowhere to be found. Uh, They didn't fall through onto the ground. You couldn't peer over the top of the car and see them. You couldn't uh, stick your hand in the grooves of the truck. They were lost. Deanne graciously offered for us to use her car to get into town. Uh, She drove a little black standard-looking car with a push to start. Uh, So we headed into town, and the town of Sterling was small. It was a, a restaurant, a few shops, the school we were working at for the week, and a mechanic. Uh, We had just a little bit of time before our meeting, so I headed down to the mechanic to ask for help. I walk in, and the air is filled with smoke, and there are two men sitting in the back, dirty white tank tops, chain smoking. I walk in, and I explain to them that I have stranded our truck in Deanne's driveway, and can you help us? Uh, They said, oh, we know Deanne. We'll head down there right now and get your car. I thanked them profusely and headed back to the school. When Michael and I's meeting concluded, I had a text on my phone from Deanne that said, hey, they were able to rescue the keys. Is there any way that you can get my car back to me and come pick up your truck? She also shared with me that they were able to rescue the keys by laying on top of the truck and sticking a fishing line uh, with a magnet on the end to get the keys. So... Uh, I looked at the clock. I had just enough time to drive the 20 minutes back to Deanne's house, get her her car back, get back in the truck, drive to the school, and be on time for the audition. So I told her I'd be on the way. 
I get out to the front of the school where we had left Deanne's car and I start driving back to her house. When I arrive, I park in the garage. I meet her there, hand her her keys. She gives me the rescued truck keys, get in the truck, start my way back to the school. 20 minutes there and back. As I pull up back to the school, there is a woman standing on the sidewalk outside of the school, and she is pointing at what appears to be me in my branded Missoula Children's Theater bright red truck, and she's screaming. I'm looking around like she, she can't be screaming at me. I, uh, I just got here. I'm going through the list of everything I've ever done wrong in my entire life. And none of it involves Sterling, Nebraska. I've only been here for 24 hours. <laughs> so I quickly park the truck, I jump out, and I, I can finally hear her, and she's screaming, you stole my car, you stole my car! And I'm still looking around. What does she mean? I stole her car. No, I drove Deanne's car here. And then I drove Deanne's car back. And Deanne met me in her garage. I gave her the keys. She saw the car. What does she mean I stole her car? I say, ma'am, I am so sorry, but I do not know what you are talking about. And she said, my keys, my keys, they were in the cup holder and I have a push to start. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that when I got into Deanne's little black push-to-start car, I actually got into this woman, Janet's push-to-start little black car parked in front of the school and drove it away. I stole her car. I said, ma'am, um, if you just wait right here, I'm just gonna go get your car. I race back to the truck, race back to Deanne's house, 20 minutes, the longest 20 minutes of my entire life. I don't cry very often in life, but when I say that I sobbed the entire way back to Deanne's house, I mean it. The Missoula Children's Theater has been touring for 50 years. We're celebrating our 50th year of touring. Yes, thank you across the world and the country. And the reason, one of the many reasons why people love to bring Missoula Children's Theater back to their community over and over again, year after year, is because of our incredible reputation. <laughs> and they hire tour actors who represent that image and represent that uh, organization that's bigger than themselves. Um, they hire people who are professional and kind and friendly and care about the mission of teaching life skills to children through the performing arts. Stealing a vehicle is not a part of that. So I uh, finally get back to Deanne's house and I race into the garage and she meets me there because she hears me coming and, and she says, Abigail, why are you back here and why are you sobbing? I said, Deanne, and I pointed to the stolen car in the garage. I said, Deanne, this is not your car. And she took a long, hard look at the car and she said, you know what, Abigail, now that I take a closer look, that is not my vehicle. <laughs> and sweet Deanne, she put her arms out and I just melted into her, in, into her. And, and she said, Abigail, I think you just need a hug. This woman that I just met 24 hours ago, just holding me in her garage next to a stolen car. 
And I said, finally, I said, Deanne, I have to get this car back to the school. I get in the stolen car. Of course, it pushes to start right away because sure enough, the keys are right in the cup holder. Drive back to the school, 20 minutes. I am white knuckling the entire way back because I'm in a stolen car and it's icy and snowing, Nebraska in March. Uh, When I finally arrive back at the school, Janet is sure enough waiting right where I left her and I hand her her keys and I said, I am so sorry that I stole your car. And she said, I am so sorry that I yelled at you and I am rethinking leaving my keys in the car. Now, at this point, I am very late for the audition that I'm supposed to be at. So um, I, at some point, texted Michael, who's running the audition by himself, because he's amazing. Hey, uh, so I've had a little situation. I'm okay. Everything's fine. uh, But I'm going to be a little late. I get back in Deanne's car, 20 minutes back to her house. I get back in the truck, 20 minutes back to the school. At this point, hours later, I have just barely stopped sobbing, and uh, I get ready to go back in the school, I've got the truck, I've got the keys, and I paste a smile on my face, and sure enough, I walk into the gym, and Michael is perfectly, beautifully running an audition with all of these children who are hoping to be a part of our cast of Pinocchio, and I look at Michael, and I give him a nod that says, hey, everything's okay, um, but wow, do I have a great story for you later. (laughs) It's the little things. Losing the keys, throwing the keys, the push to start, not recognizing the wrong car in the garage. Sometimes the little things have really big consequences. Thank you. Thanks, Abigail. Abigail Gilbert is a professional actor, educator, and director who originally hails from Duluth, Minnesota. She is proud to work at the Missoula Children's Theater as the tour marketing associate and social media specialist, and at Studio M as a teacher and vocal instructor. On stage, she was most recently seen as Columbia in the Rocky Horror Picture Show and as Little Red Riding Hood in Into the Woods at Missoula Community Theater. She was recently voted Missoula's Best Actor in the Missoulians' Best of Missoula 2022 contest. Next up is Regina O'Brien. Regina was unable to afford housing and was living in a teepee in the desert. Living in a teepee causes one to notice so many little things that others might miss. Regina calls her story, Little Things Aren't Little. Thanks for listening. (laughs) I lived in a teepee for a year and a half in the Jemez Mountains in north-central New Mexico. I had gotten a job in one of the little villages there, and housing was really tight. And the teepee was a good alternative to nothing. (laughs) And uh, living a life like that, you learn a few things. Now, most people know what a teepee looks like, and what they know is the skin. And that is essentially a big umbrella. It keeps the rain off, but it's really drafty. What makes it work is the canvas liner on the inside. It is connected to the teepee poles at about chest high, and it goes all the way to the ground. This liner, basically, it keeps the draft from going into the living area and funnels it up to the smoke hole. It does not do a good job at keeping out the neighbors. <laughs> the, you know, the, the ones who, who were there first, the mice, 
the rock squirrels, the tarantulas. <laughs> and knowing that I could have surprise visitors at any time, I learned to pay a lot of attention to my surroundings. It's one of the benefits of tarantulas. <laughs> Teepees have no windows, and I couldn't look outside. And I found that, well, I don't know if my senses became more acute or if I just paid more attention to them, or probably both. But I found that I could identify the birds flying overhead by the cadence and the sound of their wing beats. I learned that the wind going through a pinyon pine sounds different than the wind going through a ponderosa or a juniper. What I didn't realize until I left the teepee was how integrated my senses were to my awareness. When I left the Hamas and wound up in a real house, I felt safe. I had real walls. I had windows I could look out of. I had a door I could lock. But when I went to bed that first night and I started going to sleep, I had this strong sense that something was wrong, something, something was wrong, something, something was wrong. And I wound up going from room to room to room trying to figure out what was wrong. And I realized I was looking out of all of the windows. It was night, it was dark, I couldn't see anything. And what was wrong was I didn't know what was going on outside. In the teepee, you have this constant flow of air going through. And that airflow let me know what the weather was doing. I could feel the temperature change, the, the moisture in the air. I could smell the pinyon pine. I could taste the dust. I could hear the coyotes in the cars from miles away. And in the house, all of a sudden, my senses were confined to the inside of the house. And I learned I had to reassess what safety meant to me. When I first moved into the teepee, it was late summer, but I was at over 6,000 feet elevation and I knew winter was coming pretty soon. So I went to talk to my landlady, Ariana, who lived like 50 yards away in a two-room dirt floor shack. She was upscale, she had a wood stove. And I said, how much firewood do I need? You know, how, how cold does it get here? And she goes, you know, I got rid of my thermometer years ago. I, I did not need to know it was minus 20 inside my house. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> I got some cinder blocks and I raised my sleeping platform. I had two rugs, my insulated uh, sleeping pad, a winterweight sleeping bag, a queen-size alpaca wool blanket folded in half on top of the sleeping bag, another blanket on top of that, and my coat, which doubled as my robe. My sleeping attire consisted of thermal underwear, heavy-duty sweatpants and hoodie, at least one pair of socks, a knit cap, and wool gloves, fingerless so I could find and use the zipper in my sleeping bag. In the long evening hours between sunset and bed, I usually had a cup of tea. On one particularly cold evening, I made the mistake of having two cups of tea. <laughs> and even though I used the chamber pot, after I went to bed, nature called. 
and it was really nasty because I had to do more than pee. <laughs> I had to go outside and use the pit underneath my special tree. The fire was out, it was dark, it was freaking cold, and I knew if I procrastinated it would only get worse. So I unzipped my sleeping bag, and I found my flashlight, turned it on, and you have to bear in mind that this next part, I was trying to keep as much heat inside the sleeping bag as possible. So I pulled my coat up to myself, put it on, and I could feel my body heat going into the coat. I checked my shoes to make sure that I was the only one in them, <laughs> got out of the sleeping bag, put my shoes on, and I could feel the cold seeping through my socks. I got up, picked up the, the flashlight, and was headed towards the door, and something made me check my chamber pot. And the clear fluid that was in it was now opaque and kind of slushy. And I realized that Ariana was right. There were some things you really did not need to know. <laughs> so I went to the door. I untied the thong that kept the liner in front of the door, pulled that back, took a breath, ducked down because the opening was like this tall, pushed the drape aside, went outside, and I was transfixed. I no longer felt the cold. There was no moon that night, and there were so many stars. My mind went numb, and the sky was so incredibly, absolutely, unforgivably black that it looked solid. The night sky, it was it was, it didn't just look, it was a black, solid dome about 20 feet over my head. The stars were not little orbs in the sky, they were pinpricks, they were perforations in this solid black sky. And I remember thinking that if I had a ladder, I could climb up there and I would, could push against the sky. And I, I was wondering what it would feel like. I don't know how long I stood there. I know that I visited my pit and made my tree happy, but I don't remember doing that. And I remember beginning to shiver because even though I wasn't aware of the cold, it was still affecting me. And my brain kicked in and I know I needed to go back to my bag, but I don't remember doing that either. All I really remember is a phrase that I heard from a Celtic storyteller years ago, and at the time I didn't understand it. He was describing something as having a terrible beauty. And when I looked at that sky, I was so intimidated and so amazed. That sky, it enfolded, it, like it, it, I was immersed in that sky. I would, could just feel myself expand. And that sounds stupid even to me. I mean, just, but all I could think of, I could feel that incredible beauty to my bones. Later on, it was, it was my, second, my second winter. It was 
February 1st, 7 a.m. I was doing my morning routine. The fire was burning well. My coffee was, was brewing. I was fixing breakfast. And overhead, I heard this weird sound. It was a staccato, warbly, shrieky, moany, groany sound that lasted all of three seconds. No idea what it was. I shrugged it off, took care of my breakfast. I still had to make lunch and I'd get ready for work. And when I got to work a little while later, the ladies at the front desk were talking about the morning news. And I said, that's what that sound was. And they looked at me. They didn't hear anything. They were inside their house. And another woman who was standing there goes, I heard it too. She was outside feeding her chickens. And that sound that I shrugged off so I wouldn't burn my own meal was the sound of seven people dying as the space shuttle Columbia broke apart and its pieces and the bodies tumbled across the sky over my head. In a month and a half, that'll be 20 years ago, and I can still hear that sound. The little things that make a difference in your life. The things that you ignore, you don't acknowledge, uh, a piece of information you hear, the, the movement of air against your cheek, a three-second sound bite. Those kinds of things will change your perspective, open your world, nail an instance to your heart for the rest of your life. Those little things are not little. Thank you. Thanks, Regina. Regina O'Brien put herself through college, working a montage of odd jobs for 11 years. She graduated with two bachelor degrees and eventually got a career with the federal government. After years of seeing people staying in positions they hated so that they could have a secure retirement, having their security bled out by illness, death, or catastrophe, and feeling stressed out and ineffective in her own job, she quit. She got rid of everything that did not fit into her mid-sized pickup and started driving. Regina has been living around the edges of mainstream society ever since. Regina is a relative newcomer to Montana and currently lives in Potomac and works in Missoula as a massage therapist. Closing out this episode of the podcast, Jeremy N. Smith in 7th grade walks around his teacher's desk all day. The lessons he learned that day have lasted 30 plus years. Jeremy calls his story 1,000 times. Thanks for listening. 1990, mid-December, middle school. It's lunch period, and my fellow nerd, Josh Engelman, and I are holed up in our social studies teacher, Mrs. Fisher's classroom, working on an extra credit project on if and where to locate a third airport for the city of Chicago. The discussion is so intense, I start pacing around Mrs. Fisher's wooden desk. Josh thinks this is funny, so he grabs a piece of chalk and starts tallying my laps on the blackboard. One, two, three, with a big X when I get to 10. Because Josh thinks it's funny, 
I think it's funny. And I say, I'm going to go around this desk 1,000 times. And 20 minutes later, when the bell rings, lunch over, there's already about 100 marks on the board. At this point, Mrs. Fisher enters. She is a stern, white-haired woman wearing her customary shapeless sort of muumuu-style polka dot print dress. We have never seen her smile, much less laugh, but she must have had a couple extra shots of something in the teacher's lounge. Retirement is on the horizon. It is winter break next week. And so when she says, what's going on? And Josh says, he's going around your desk a thousand times. She's like, okay, Einstein's, this I want to see. Our classmates roll in a few seconds after that. They say, what's going on? And Mrs. Fisher points to Josh. Josh points to me and he says, he's going around her desk a thousand times. And they're like, yeah. And so for the next 45 minutes, 25 perfectly healthy, intelligent students, instead of learning social studies, Watch me go around in circles. 150, 200, 250, 300 times. And then the bell rings and people laugh and they clap and they leave. And we have science now, Josh and I. And I look to him like, what are we going to do, right? We're... We're extra credit kids. We don't ditch class. We like staying at lunch to make an extra one. (laughs) But then the next social studies class rolls in. And they say, what's going on? And Mrs. Fisher points at Josh. And Josh points at me. And he says, he's going around her desk 1,000 times. (laughs) And they laugh and they clap and they cheer and like I forget about the airport, (laughs) and extra credit and four credit, and for the next 45 minutes, we ditch science and 25 more perfectly healthy, intelligent students instead of learning social studies. Watch me go around a desk, 350, 400, 450, 500 times. Next is math class. Oh, well, we ditched that. (laughs) And then finally, fittingly, final period, we miss gym. (laughs) At this point, I have been walking with purpose for like two to three hours. (laughs) I'm a chubby kid with glasses, and my, like, ankles are, and calves are throbbing. My chest is hollowed out. My glasses are, like, coming off my sweaty head. I don't know how this started. Like, but this is, like, this isn't just what I do. This is, like, who I am now, okay? I'm, like, uh, uh, like a marathon desk circling machine, and like the whole school knows about it. I'm legendary in progress. 
And I said that Josh was my fellow nerd, but Josh actually doesn't have glasses. And Josh is a relatively more athletic rollerblader. And Josh has twice experienced something that I haven't even dreamed of, which is having a girlfriend. So this is it. This is my moment in the social spotlight. I can't keep going, but I have to keep going. And so I power on, I stumble forward, and finally the whole class stands and they chant together the final steps of my journey. 997, 998, 999, a thousand just as the bell rings. Last class, last period, school's out. I did it. And everyone's, the cheers, the applause, high fives louder than ever. And then they shrug and they gather their stuff and they go. <laughs> and then uh, Mrs. Fisher shrugs and gets her stuff. Maybe goes back to the teacher's lounge and goes. And then Josh shrugs and gets his stuff and goes to meet his girlfriend. And it's just me in the classroom with the blackboard with a thousand marks and the carpet I've worn circles in and like my great white whale of this desk. And I shrug too and I get my stuff and I limp home. <laughs> and I have had 20, no, 32 years to figure out what happened. <laughs> and I've come up with these three lessons. First, there is a reasonable debate people can have about whether 1,000 of something is a little or a lot. It is more than 10 and 100 on the one hand. It is less than a million or a billion on the other hand. And I'm just here to tell you I know. <laughs> okay, I, I lived, I have the experience, if you do anything at all 1,000 times, even walk around a desk, you will know that a 1,000 of anything is a lot. <laughs> Number two, if you marry repetition to ambition, you can accomplish great things. I have uh, spent the last 20 years working as a writer. That means I'm basically professionally a desk circler. <laughs> and so I know intimately well that if you write one page in a day, that's not very much. But if you write one page a day for a thousand days, wow, you have just written a whole book. Third, last, and most important, the reverse is true too. Even if you have done something a thousand times in a row, 
even if it's how everybody knows you for better or for worse. If, even if it's not just what you do, it's who you are. If it's not serving you anymore, you can stop. <laughs> I went to school the next day. And I got a very stern talking to in science. I got a makeup test in math. And limping, wincing, I was made to run laps for 45 minutes in gym. But before that, I went into social studies. And there was the blackboard, fresh, clean, newly erased. There was the vacuumed carpet, not a trace in it. And there was the desk eyeing me saying, want to go again? <laughs> and I just shook my head and I stumbled forward and I went right to my seat. <laughs> and it was just a little thing. But let me tell you, something so little has rarely felt so good. Thanks, Jeremy. Jeremy N. Smith is a journalist, podcaster, and author. He has written for The Atlantic, Discover, Slate, and The New York Times, among other outlets. And he and his work have been featured by CNN, NPR, NBC Nightly News, The Today Show, and Wired. Jeremy is from Evanston, Illinois, and has lived the last 20 years in Missoula, except for last year when he spent a family year abroad with his wife Chrissy and their daughter Rasa in Puerto Escondido, Oaxaca, Mexico. His latest interest is in skateboarding, and he is looking for someone to help teach him how to ollie. Learn more and make contact at jeremynsmith.com. Thank you to our stewardship sponsor, Blackfoot Communications. Learn more at blackfoot.com. Thanks to our storyteller sponsor, Viga Pizza. You can find them and place an order at vegapizza.com. And thanks to our accessibility sponsor, Grizzly Grocery. Learn more at grizzlygrocery.com. Thank you to our media sponsors, MissoulaEvents.net, Missoula Broadcasting Company, and Gecko Designs. Thanks as well to our in-kind sponsors, Joyce of Tile and Float Missoula. Remember that the next Tell Us Something event is March 30th at the Denison Theater. You can learn more about how to pitch your story on the theme the first time and get your tickets at tellussomething.org. 